Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. To me, it just seemed like things really were different this time around, and there was no way to be neutral. And being neutral actually was the same as taking a side. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. We're interviewing the people that are making change happen in America, and we're talking to them about how we can all use our platforms, whether they're big or small. And today we're going to talk to one of the biggest names in the tech entrepreneur world. Now, he had not been an activist previously, but the night of the 2016 election, like a lot of people, he watched in horror. But unlike a lot of people, he set about creating a tool for making sure that this kind of thing never happens again. Now, before we get to that, I hope you'll consider either subscribing or if you're subscribed, making sure that all your friends get subscribed because I don't want you or any of your friends to miss a single episode this season because we got really good stuff coming. So hit that subscribe button because I'm not sure if you're aware of this yet, but our show is quite good. Like it's really, really good. I've heard this on good authority from many people, including my wife, who, as you know, is very smart. Now, back to our guest, Eric Reese. Eric, he comes from the tech world and his first book, The Lean Startup, it was published in 2011, seven years ago, and it's still a bestseller. As somebody who has their own book coming out in a few weeks, I'm pretty impressed by that. Eric has helped a lot of startups and large organizations find faster and and less risky ways to innovate. And inadvertently, recently, he's become really influential in the resistance against Donald Trump's policies. In fact, even though you may not have heard of Eric before I mentioned his name just now, many of you probably have used a tool that he invented. Now, in addition to all of that, his most recent venture is to create a brand new stock exchange to address the many problems that exist in today's financial system. You are going to love this conversation with Eric Reese. Here it is. So among entrepreneurs and corporate innovators, you're one of the bigger celebrities that there is. And yet most of our audience at Majority 54 likely has never heard of you because they're into politics instead of being into entrepreneurship. So Eric, for the folks who are just getting to know you for the first time, tell them how you became so well-known in entrepreneurship and, and corporate innovation. Well, it's very kind of you to, to, to say that. So I kind of got into entrepreneurship, not the way it looks in the movies, but through the way it actually is for most people, which is through a lot of failure. And then I came out to Silicon Valley after I graduated and got the chance to learn the Silicon Valley system, see both the successes, but a lot of the failures that we have even here in Silicon Valley. And I started writing about that experience after I started to have some success. Um, I created a blog and eventually a management theory for entrepreneurship called The Lean Startup, which takes ideas about lean manufacturing and all kinds of other ideas from the past and tries to apply them to the dynamism and chaos of uh, of a startup uh, and, you know, and, and subsequently been used for all kinds of things, including quite a few political startups because they have that same feeling of terrific uncertainty. And so most management methods of the past, including the ones that people have tried to use in campaigns too, 
were very top-down, very command and control oriented, and very much depend on kind of knowing what you're doing. And entrepreneurship is all about not knowing what you're doing and being able to thrive despite the uncertainty and the chaos that is inherent to that situation. And writing about that topic kind of inadvertently took over my life. So I went from being a technologist, technical co-founder of startups to all of a sudden being an author and a management thinker, whatever that is, and being asked to travel over the world and talk to people and work with companies. And so I kind of had this this, uh, fascinating and inadvertent look at the way business and governments and nonprofits and NGOs kind of really work behind the scenes trying to help all those different kinds of companies be more innovative. You and I were initially connected through my wife, Diana, because you're both in the entrepreneurship world. And mm-hmm. and then before you and I actually met, I can remember during the 2016 campaign, she would show me uh, social media posts of yours where you were like pro-Hillary or you'd be anti-Trump. And what she was showing me was all the pushback that you would get from, uh, mm, from yeah. other folks in your world. Because while you, you know, you were saying you were a liberal arts major, you saw yourself as interested in politics, you weren't outwardly political to the rest of the world at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And and it just seemed seemed to me in looking at that, that people kind of wanted you to stay in your lane. And, and I know uh, you've told me that you weren't initially like a, a huge liberal necessarily growing up. So I'm just kind of curious, what pushed you to become more uh, outwardly political? Sure. You know, uh, this is this is all very personal to me. You know, first of all, you have people who who know me through my recent you know writing and, and activism don't realize that I, I have I come from a more conservative background in terms of my own uh, political philosophy. I I grew up reading Ayn Rand, and you know, uh, I was president of the uh, Party of the Right at Yale. For those who don't know what that is, the, the most conservative organization uh, uh, on college campus. So so I you know I really came up through the conservative movement and got to see that up close. And, you know, there were certain aspects of that that really appealed to me, you know, especially thinking of myself as, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a, you know, as a job creator, as someone who really believed in the power of individual people to, to, to create really new things that other people benefit from. During the 2016 campaign, you know, I really felt obligated to say something about some of the things that I was seeing that were really disturbing to me. And, People interpreted that as me, you know, becoming all of a sudden this this very outspoken liberal. And of course, I I was advocating for things that are currently considered on the liberal part of the spectrum. But I was really surprised by the pushback. I really didn't see it that way. I didn't even see myself as acting in a partisan way. I thought I was standing up for American values around the importance of democracy, you know, truth telling about, you know, know, I know an issue very near and dear to your heart, the, the integrity of the voting process. And the principles that this country was founded on, which, you know, you know, I, I used to think of so many of those as conservative values, as protecting the institutions and the civic fabric, the, the, the public morality of this country. That used to be what being conservative was all about. And it was surreal to me, not just in this election. It really wasn't really just about 2016, but it has been surreal to me over the last 10 or 15 years to watch the realignment of the parties around really different ideas. It, that I have found totally baffling. So so I have this kind of feeling like I, you know, I was maybe a you know a libertarian or center-right person growing up. And then I feel like now the world has reconfigured itself where me with my same old beliefs is now considered a flaming liberal. And well, and then who would have thought? Yeah. Well, what kind of pushback did you get? I mean, when you say, I mean, look, you're you're a thought leader in Silicon Valley, but you're a thought leader overall for folks in, in corporate innovation and in entrepreneurship. And yeah. like you yourself said, 
part of the reason that you saw yourself as more conservative, it sounds like, was just sort of because there was a, a sort of a personal identity for you that kind of felt like, well, look, people in this space believe this. Um, I think it was deeper than that, but but clearly there was a sense that those things went together. So among yeah. those people, what was the pushback like that you got? Yeah, I mean, look, if you if you make the intellectual mistake, as I did, of dividing the world into makers and takers, and you see yourself as a maker, then that has a whole bunch of you know consequences for how you think of yourself and how you think about your political identity. And I think it was very effective to try to build a political tribe out of those ideas, although I think the the gig is up, as they say. All that being said, most people in Silicon Valley do not consider it appropriate to speak out on political issues. You know, we, we tend to be a, a more of a business-oriented crowd where either people have a sense that they're kind of above politics, like they don't like to get messy into the partisan divide. We're thinking about the future. We want to think about, you know, the broad scope of history, not the details of what's happening this year. And then there's also this idea that you don't want to alienate your customers. So at the end of the day, you know, those of us who are entrepreneurs, you know, we we're generally are selling a product. And so people who buy that product are liberal or conservative or none of the above, and, and you don't want to be alienating them. And that, I actually think all that makes a lot of sense. That's why if you, you know, I wrote a little bit about the Obama campaign, you know, occasionally, uh, you know, in uh, in 08 and 2012. But but most of my writing is strictly apolitical. And even most of my Twitter activity, social media activity was very apolitical. But to me, it just seemed like things really were different this time around. And there was no way to be neutral. And being neutral actually was the same as taking a side. And I think part of that has to do with my own personal history. You know, my my grandparents were products of World War II. You know, they they were victims of the Holocaust. My grandfather uh, you know, fought in the uh, in the U.S. Navy uh, in, in Japan, so so they would always talk to me about uh, the depression, about the rise of fascism in the world, and they wouldn't talk about it in those kind of abstract terms. But they were like they lived through that darkness firsthand, and they would every once in a while warn me that it could come back. You know, they were not. They didn't have a sense that they were victorious over it and it was gone forever. And not to be all Lord of the Rings about it or anything, but like the darkness is never fully gone. And right when you get complacent about it, it can come back. And so I think that also shaped my personal experience of, you know, especially now you look at the rise of, of neo-Nazis into the body politic and kind of this certain kind of extremist language that I think even 10 years ago would have been considered absolutely uh, unacceptable. Now back you know, the way we talk about international relations. So there's all these these factors that I remember them talking to me about. And as a kid, I was like, oh, my grandparents are so old-fashioned. I grew up in America. You know, I'm an American citizen. This kind of stuff is never going to happen to me. And then to see their words kind of come to fruition, I think I, I found it more alarming than some of my peers who, you know, who for whatever reason didn't have that same experience. Okay. I, I want to talk about your entrance into political activism, uh, ResistBot, which you came up with while you were on paternity leave shortly after the election. So I'd love for you to share that story. You know, being a parent, it just changes your perspective. But for me, anyway, it really changed my perspective of the stakes of politics before. You know, I, I never really thought about the long-term consequences of politics. Like, it was more like a team sport to me. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute, what is this world that my children are being brought up into? And what what responsibility do I have to keep them safe? And just, it was very stressful for me personally. And, you know, and I, and, and people want to make this conversation all about Trump, but it, it, it's not, it wasn't really so much about Trump per se, but the whole discourse and the way that congressional races were handled and the, the commentary from politicians after the election and 
you know, the enablement of certain kind of corruption that now has become routine in our government that was unheard of even two years ago. So, like, it, w- it was not just about him personally. And I was – I took an extended paternity leave, which, you know, that, that's a whole different topic for, for Silicon Valley. It's not always the most family-friendly. But I really believe, you know, I, I, I run a startup and I really wanted to model that behavior for all my employees and make sure we understood that, you know, that having a family and, and working in a sustainable way is super important. But the un- unexpected consequence was I was home with my daughter, you know, who was not sleeping that much. So I was often up with her in the middle of the night, you know, trying to get her to sleep. And then I'd be on my phone checking the news. And you all, everyone remembers the torrential amount of news those first few months in 2017. And I was just in a, you know, dial turned up to 11 level of stress about the news constantly. And I just felt like I got to do something about this. And it started out with, um, you know, there were a lot of people saying, okay, it's really important to contact your member of Congress and let them know how you feel about things. And I was like, all right, well, that's something at least I can do. My, my small way, I'm going to contact. I got three representatives. I got two senators and one uh, member of Congress. All I have to do is call, make three phone calls a day. I can totally do that every day, no problem. And then any of you who've ever tried to do that, it's unbelievably difficult, especially with an infant at home. So then I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to call every day, but I could at least send them a, a fax or an email. And then that's not so easy either. And, you know, I was like, trying to like queue up a fax template to make sure I did. And the phone lines were completely jammed in those days. And I was like, it's actually extremely difficult to be heard by your member of Congress. I said, okay, well, that, that, that's like classic entrepreneur thinking. I got to do something about this. So I, I got some friends together uh, and some early volunteers, and we built a product that at first was super simple. We called it ResistBot. And it was just a way for you to text a number. You, you can do it today. It's still, still up and running. You can text RESIST to 50409. And it would ask you what's on your mind, you know, find out who you were, where you lived, ask you what's on your mind. And it would format that properly to a letter and fax it to your three congressional representatives. I love, and by the was, way, can I just know, jump so in for simple. a second? I, 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 the funny thing is I used this and uh, I didn't. And then only later when you and I uh, started hanging out, did I realize you created it. But I love just the poetry of like uh, Silicon Valley thought leader who becomes, uh, you know, an activist in this way and creates a, a product that allows you to fax something <laughs> like just like that. Yeah, it's using a fax machine, like going around all the other technology that is used more often since in order to send something to a member of Congress that they have no choice but to see. That's right. And, and actually, the hardest part of getting it built, you're going to laugh at this. The hardest thing was convincing the engineers who were working with me on it that we should use fax. Everyone's yeah. like, there's got to be a better way. Like, surely we can send them an email. And I'm like, have you actually looked at how the congressional email system works? Well, they were probably like, worried. No. They, they, were they like, this is not going to sound cool? <laughs> I mean. Well, it's it just, it was like, we just, everyone's like, there, there automatically must be a better way. But actually, it turned out to be retro cool. This really surprised me. Uh-huh. So, so I built this thing as a, what we call minimum viable product in lean startup terms. We literally built it in a weekend. We had like 20 beta testers try it the next week. And I was stunned at the response that we got. People would immediately were just like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It makes me feel heard. We instantly got a lot of notes from people who, you know, suffer from a disability. That means they can't call in to the member of Congress. Mm. We, you know, we, we got, I remember early emails. We got a lot of parents who were like, I'm, home, I'm up at night. I can't call people during the day. I remember a nurse wrote us in very early on. is like, I got, I work the night shift. So if I want to make my opinions heard, I can't, can't call between the hours of, you know, nine and three and whatever. 
Uh, so it's like all, all of a sudden people had a really intense respond to it. And then for younger people, for a lot of people, this was the first time they had ever sent a fax in their life. <laughs> they like heard of fax as a myth. It's like a vinyl record. It was this old thing. And the clever thing that we did, you know, was just we would send you a text message with a picture of what the fax looked like that we sent. on. We, we would format it for you properly as a formal letter on letterhead. The computer would design a custom letterhead for each citizen. So you got your own special letter. And people would start posting those letters to social media, being like, yo, dude, I just sent my first fax, you know, with like the fax emoji that they've never had a chance to use. Uh, and, it, and it just went crazy viral you know, almost from the first day. And in fact, you were kind of burdened by its success at first, right? It, it actually was a total nightmare. So I built this thing myself with some friends. You know, like I said, we, you know, we had a few, uh, a few companies had donated us like a little hosting space and stuff. But, but this cost money to produce. And I just put it on my credit card. <laughs> and, you know, well, I remember when we passed 10,000 faxes sent, I was like, this is really cool. And then a few days later, we, we were sending 10,000 faxes a day. And then I was like, uh-oh, this is starting to get expensive. And it's still and on your credit card. And then we passed 100,000 faxes, and I was like, this is now becoming a significant problem. And then we started doing 100,000 a day. <laughs> and I was like, I have my credit card. I don't have a credit limit. You know, I've had a lot of success in my life, but I, even I cannot afford this level of success. And we had to, you know, we really were in a panic. Plus, just now for those who are from, you know, know anything about technology, these scalability challenges to get this done are actually like quite significant uh, because this, this is civic tech operating at a scale that very few civic tech products uh, have ever reached. And, you know, I, I think we just passed like 10 million messages sent or so. I got to check the stats here, but check your yeah, credit card you know, statement. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, right. And so, you know, and so we tried, um, yeah, yeah, we, we, we passed 10, 10 million messages and we tried getting foundations and kind of political donors to give us money to keep the lights on. And they'd all be like, oh, great. We need to, we need a few weeks to think about this. We need a few months to think about it. Mm -hmm. And like, we'd be like, there's, there's no, a few weeks from now, this thing is going to be dead because we're having too much success. We need, you know, we've got to act fast. And in desperation, actually, we decided, you know, we'll, we'll just ask the citizens themselves to donate. We'll just ask them for a dollar, five dollars, chip in whatever you can afford to help us keep the lights on. And it was amazing to me, the response. This thing has been uh, essentially citizen powered from the first day. And there's no way we could afford to do it otherwise. You know, no, no one gets paid. There's not paid labor on this. It's just, you know, it's volunteers. But even just the technical costs of sending all these text messages and keeping the servers on, uh, you know, it got it got really expensive. And uh, and we have powered it entirely with citizen donations. And so you basically just reached out to people through the app, right? You just said, hey, if you like this, give here. Yeah. Well, so it was funny. We used text messages because what would happen was initially we had we had we had what we called the bot on fire <laughs> error message. So what would happen is like, uh, you know, the there would be something like the healthcare reform bill, you know, repeal or or the DACA, you know, rescission or just like there'd be these terrible decisions that people would get furious about. And we would just get this wave of people trying to text in and the bot would fall over because the scalability wasn't there. And we would send people a message with a little uh, ambulance emoji to let them know that, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> we're, we're really working hard, but it, it can't. And so we just we just asked people when the bot went down, if they would help us donate to bring it back up. Uh, yeah. And all of a sudden that unlocked this behavior where people were like so generous. And we, you know, so many people write us in and say, I can only afford to give you a few dollars. <laughs> but this this thing means a lot to me. and I don't want it to go away. And so, here, you know, here you go. 
And so we felt a real sense of responsibility then to those people to be like, we got we to gotta make every dollar really count here. And, and we then started to recruit volunteers. We would we ask people to donate or would you like to volunteer? We've now had hundreds and hundreds of volunteers, coders, programmers, um, writers. Now this the bot does a lot more now than just faxes. Um, yeah, talk so about we have volunteers doing a lot of different stuff now. Talk about that a little bit. Would you talk about how ResistBot has has evolved? Sure. Well, so my original vision for it, I mean, the MVP was just faxing, but I always had this vision that most of the people I know who want to be politically engaged can't. They actually can't do it because it's actually very difficult. You know, people who grew up going to protests and people who were used to, uh, you know, being involved, like there's actually a tremendous skill set that they have as an unconscious competence that most ordinary citizens don't have. So when people get asked to go to a protest, most people don't know really what that means or how to do it. When people get asked to write a letter to the editor, it's overwhelmingly difficult. And so they don't. And our view was right from the beginning, my vision was let us walk people up the ladder of engagement. Mm. And find out like, because like if you can't even write a fax, then you're certainly not going to a protest. But someone who writes a fax every day and, you know, is religious about it, well, that person's probably ready to take the next step. So the bot still is very simple. If you go to our website, all we really talk about is, um, you know, just sending messages to your member of Congress. We now we did eventually integrate with a congressional email system. So we're not <laughs> we had certain uh, we, we, we melted down uh, Senator Ted Cruz's fax machines and he like turned them off in all his offices and <laughs> You know, like we actually had like a lot of a lot of offices where like we're fighting with the physical fax machine. So we we have a better and more more digital integration now. But like then we will we want to you know, encourage people to make it easier to call into your office and call the right office and call at the right time. And so we started you know, people who were very active. We would level them up to more advanced activities. And uh, one of my favorite features now is um, after after a little while of using the bot, it will start to suggest if what you wrote might make a good letter to the editor. Mm. One of our volunteers will help you submit it to uh, your local paper. I think we've had letters to the editor now published in 47 states, wow. uh, just hundreds of them. And, you know, for members of Congress, it's a very impactful way to let them know how you're feeling. Yeah. Because they're called out by name in their local paper. Like, they, their staff pays attention. And, you know, I'll tell you, you know. Well, I tell you what happens, I'm sure, is that it shows up in their press clips that they get every morning because that's exactly right. Yeah. Like you'll hear, I remember once during the campaign, uh, at one point, I think Trump referred to the clips and, and a lot of people are like, what's he talking about? And any politician knew because you, yeah. <laughs> you get, you get each morning, uh, if, you know, once your campaign is really going, uh, you'll get clips and it's just like, here are all the places where either you were written about or stuff that was written about that you need to know about. So yeah, anytime somebody in any of those 47 States writes a letter to the editor, that shows up in the clips of everybody who is is name checked in it. That's brilliant. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's just I I was I had read because I wanted to be an activist, and I was like, I'm, but I'm bad at it. I'm an introverted person. I'm not actually good at the things that all these websites tell you to do. Even though, so even like I want, to, I think of my I wish I was the kind of person that could do that. That's not you know I don't I don't I don't feel comfortable doing that. Even calling my member of Congress, I found that so stressful. It's like making a cold call. Uh, I find it hard to do. Hmm. Uh, and that never mind people who are li- like, you know, we have a lot of people who are homebound, who are disabled, you know, who who economically they can't take time off to be an activist. So like there's a lot of people for whom the normal channels don't work. And, and we just like we're just going to make it really easy for them to show up and then we're going to help them do the next whatever they're doing, whatever they're comfortable doing. We're going to help them take it to the next level. So then we started to do, you know, we, we're probably the only group or platform where we integrate with everybody. 
So every other group that is, you know, broadly speaking, you know, in values aligned with, you know, restoring these American values, we will help them work with them. So we're, you know, we integrate with the town hall project. So we started, you know, we would text you to say, hey, you know, there's a town hall meeting happening, you know, with your member of Congress. Would you like to go? We started doing voter registration, you know, and then working with, uh, you know, the March for Our Lives. We were their text message partner and working with uh, Gabby Gifford's group and just any group that we could find where we could provide technological support to help them do more than just collect lists. Everything in politics is obsessed with lists, phone number lists, email lists, mm-hmm. and the lists are just broadcast. You just, you just broadcast to that person. Very hard to customize and very hard for them to talk back. I think the most important part of it is so that people feel heard. People are upset. People are angry. People are scared. And they, their voice matters. And so, you know, voting is one, of, one component. We hope ultimately at the top of the ladder of engagement, we get people, you know, always to make sure that they vote. I know that, you know, uh, in line with the work that you do. Mm-hmm. But there's so many other ways that they can be heard throughout the year, you know, and, and uh, we just think making that more accessible to more people. That's what keeps our volunteers going. Well, what strikes me so much about it is a couple of things. One. The fact that so many of the people who use it are, and not all, but but a lot of the people who use it are actually also the very targets of these policies. Like when you're talking about folks who are homebound or just folks who, you know, they're working a full-time job. They don't have the ability to, to you know, call, make a bunch of calls to Congress. Every, like you got it. it and that's, that to me is, is a fascinating part of it. It's, it's not just, Hey, Hey, usual activist crowd. It's Hey, a crowd for which activism doesn't feel at all accessible. And also you're the very target of these policies. Like you can fight back with this. I love that part. But then the other part about it is when you talk about leveling up, I mean, it just reminds me of like my first campaign when I ran for the state legislature, our philosophy was we would be at your door and I would have a conversation with you, but in the conversation, I'm going to ask questions until the one you say no to. So first it's, you know, can I get your vote? And then it's what you... Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's campaigning 101. Exactly. And then it's, can I get a sign in the yard? And if it's yes to that, then it's, well, would you maybe host a little... Uh, or and then it's, would you volunteer? And if it's yes to that, it's, would you host a little house party so I can meet your neighbors? And then, you know, it just keeps going and going until someone says, no, that's not for me. So you took like the technology startup world side and combined it with the basic philosophy of, of campaigning. And the unique part is you actually made it accessible to the people that are being hurt. Like that is, to me, that's my favorite part of it. Oh yeah. Th- well, thanks for saying that. And I think that is a really important part of it. I can't tell you, uh, you know, I've, I've read thousands of these letters now and, and we, we publish an open feed on Twitter now uh, called resist bot letters, I think, or something like that. We actually people we ask people, would you like to just make this letter public so people can see it? And the overwhelming majority of letters, and that, by the way, from Republicans and Democrats, this is not a partisan uh, enterprise. People are, believe me, people are super pissed across the whole spectrum. Hmm. Uh, people they write in about their own personal story about how these policies affect them. So you know, we had an incredible number of people who you know who were upset about DACA uh, repeal, and so many of the letters were about. Either my, that, that they themselves uh, are undocumented and have this experience, but a lot more of them were about people who said, I, I have a neighbor, I have a friend, the person, you know, in my community who's going to be affected. And it just felt so important to me for them to really be heard by the powers that be. Uh, you know, even if ultimately we failed, uh, it, it matters, you know, cosmically, it matters that people were heard. Well, and as far as being heard, you know, you mentioned that uh, Ted Cruz's fax machine got shut down, but... What about other elected officials? I mean, did you hear from them, the impact it was making? Yeah. Well, actually, every time – and you, and you can 100 percent predict 
who chose to shut down the communication channel versus who chose to make it work. You know, I I don't think it's any coincidence that Ted Cruz, you know, with all due respect to the senator, uh, was the one who chose to turn his fax machine off. He did not want to hear from his constituents. But a lot of congressional staffers reached out to us. The member of Congress, they have an obligation to hear from their own constituents. So they they don't have a choice in the matter. They don't like that so many of their constituents are angry. They should think about uh, enacting policies that would make their constituents happier not turning off the modes of communication. Yeah. And so we, we heard from a lot of staffers. You know, first of all, first thing we heard from a lot of staffers, and I won't name, other than, other than Senator Cruz, I won't name any other offices, but we heard from quite a few staffers, like, can you please make this stop? <laughs> like, like ugh, we literally got those requests. Please make them stop faxing. It's like, what do you want me to do? You actually, you're telling me that you want me to go to your own constituents and tell them uh, con- Congressman so-and-so doesn't want to hear from you? Is that really what you're saying? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. please don't put it that way. But yeah, can you please make it stop? But eventually, once kind of we got critical mass and people got used to us being there, then we got a lot of really encouraging phone calls. And actually, during the floor fight on uh, on Obamacare repeal twice, we heard from from staffers because we we, one of our I didn't mention this. We had volunteers who would print out letters in D.C. and carry them into offices that we couldn't reach with faxes. (laughs) So like our commitment to the citizen is you give us a message. We are going to do everything possible to make this message be delivered. That means we have to dial their fax machine 10,000 times. We will do it. And like for certain offices, the only way we would actually have volunteers print the letter out and, and hand deliver them. That's awesome. Because it, for our volu- a lot of people in D.C., they don't have congressional representation, which, of course, is outrageous. Mm-hmm. And they would write us in being like, is there anything we can do in D.C. to help? <laughs> You know, we, we can't write letters, so what can we do? And the, so we had, we had volunteers doing that. And we heard from and the, our volunteers, we walk in the halls of Congress, someone would figure out that they were from Resistbot. And we heard from several staffers who said, listen, this made a huge difference in the fight. You know, you guys helped us turn the tide. Thank you. That's awesome. So, so like it was, and that was important for us to give that validation back to the people writing in to say, this makes a difference. It actually, members of Congress, they're not robots. They're human beings. And it matters to them what their constituents think. You know the trouble with human beings? Hiring the right one is challenging. Diana's still stuck on this billboard. Noah, I've had the billboard mystery solved. Somebody uh, texted me on Twitter and let me know exactly who the company was that, that needed it. This is an ad with a callback to the ad from last week. I mean, let's see who listens two weeks in a row and listens to the ads. I feel like bonus points to all those people. Yeah. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to quality candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. I think they just changed the full website. It's now ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. I don't know if that's a good branding move, but I mean, it works out well for us. <laughs> ZipRecruiter uh, sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. And as applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It sounds like it was created by an entrepreneur who had read The Lean Startup. Oh, my gosh. Are you using entrepreneur methodology now that we've talked to Eric Reese? I'm doing a callback to this episode. I love it. I love it. A lot of husband points for for (laughs) this kind of talk. Uh, ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the website in just the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. The number's 54. ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
Speaking of making a difference, and one of the things that, that we preach here on Majority 54 is that if you want to make a difference, you got to make your voice heard. And that means taking the skills that you have and figuring out what you can do. And you don't wait to get to a certain position or to have a, a certain amount of power. You can make that impact. And so That's absolutely right. So my question is, what kind of advice would you offer to others who have technical skills or other skills that they just don't know how to use to help the resistance? But honestly, my experience has been you don't have to wait. You know, no one's going to call you one day and be like, you've been selected to join the resistance. That's not how it works. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to get started. And, you know, I mean, that's why to me the lean startup concept of minimum viable product is so powerful. You know, just in a weekend, if you can code, you can code up a little prototype and you can try to understand someone's problem or pain and try and solve it. What you're saying makes perfect sense to me because with Let America Vote, I'm always telling people when they have ideas, okay, start doing it. And if it's working, then give us a chance to catch up to you. And in fact, anybody who follows Let America Vote on Twitter will know that there's lots of videos and things like that that get put out. But often uh, those are from people who just make them and then send them to us. It's it's not always something that has started like in our <laughs> right. with our digital director, right? There's a There are a few people around the country who I've met as I've gotten around who they'll come up and say, hey, I'm Joe from New York. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember the video you made. And it, it, But it goes out as a Let America Vote, and it goes viral, and it informs people. So like you said, design. I mean, that's a great point, is that if there's something you think you can do to help, you just start doing it and then let the organization catch up to you. Everyone I meet, especially those who are thinking about entrepreneurship, thinking about politics, thinking about you know whatever they, they think, when I'm ready, when I get this credential, when I, when I have the funding, if I only I had this or only I had, then I could get started. And if you look at the successful campaigns, you look at the successful entrepreneurs, you'd be shocked how often the only thing that distinguishes them from other people who didn't do it is just that be, even though they weren't ready, they did it anyway. And they just got started and they gave it a try and they fell on their face and they weren't afraid to be embarrassed. And that's just, that's, that's the experience. That's what entrepreneurship is really like. You listen to the show, so you know that we end every episode by running through a quick list of arguments that our listeners might hear from, say, right-leaning family members, misinformed friends, you know, the propaganda machine. And, and these ideas and the viewpoints, they're, they're frustrating. Uh, but one of the goals of the show is, is to give tools to engage with the other side. So mm -hmm. I'm going to rattle off a few uh, opposition talking points or just hot topics here. And, mm -hmm. and we're going to share constructive responses to what are sometimes less than constructive statements. So, <laughs> yeah, you got it. So today we're discussing really online politics and, and the politics of, of being online. So we'll start with um, talking about net neutrality. Actually, as we're recording this, it is the day that the end of net neutrality as it were, is to take effect. The federal government starts rolling back net neutrality rules today. The Republican-led Federal Communications Commission voted to repeal the Obama-era regulations in December. Now, those rules required online service providers to treat all Internet traffic the same without slowing down or blocking content from competing providers. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai wrote for our partners at CNET Overnight, the Internet should be an open platform where you are free to go where you want and say what you do, say and do what you want without having to ask anyone's permission. First on CBS this morning, Chairman Pai is here to discuss what this means for consumers. Rather than get into the uh, for and against here, let's just start with this, because I think a lot of people claim to understand it who don't necessarily actually <laughs> understand it. We'll just ask you, what is net neutrality and why do we need it? Sure. So uh, this can sound very technical, but it's actually pretty simple. 
Uh, and the thing I think is most important to understand is that absolutely everybody who works in the technology industry and who cares about the ability of technology entrepreneurship to be broadly accessible universally thinks this is a no-brainer. So you have to find, you have to look really hard to find folks who don't think this is an important issue, kind of at the level of principles. And it goes all the way back to uh, Mark Zuckerberg in his dorm room. And so many technology entrepreneurs, you've picked your favorite website, and I can tell you the story of how the founders were, you know, just messing around one day and thought, you know what, let me create a new business, a new website, a new technology. Let me see if it could work. Let me run the experiment. And they put it up on the web. So, you know, you, you get the domain, you put your website up. Anyone could do this. You, you could go to Squarespace or, you know, any, any website builder, anybody. That's what's so amazing about the internet. Anybody can put up any website they want at any time. Uh, and then anybody else can use it. Now, imagine that before Mark Zuckerberg could run that experiment, he had to contact his local cable company and work out a deal to get, allow their customers to have access to his website. Mm -hmm. How many college kids would have the sophistication to know how to do that? Then why would they make that inexpensive? Of course, they're getting paid a huge amount of money from incumbents. So why would they want to have more people create more websites? They want to make it difficult and expensive. And the way you know that is you can look at lots of other technologies. I won't get into the geeky details, but we've been through this a lot in the technology industry. When you have central control over technology platforms, the people who control those platforms make it expensive to participate. Anyone remember 900 numbers or 976 numbers from back in the day on phone uh, phone lines that were only used for psychic hotlines and uh, pornog pornographic stuff? Uh, the reason that was true is because they were so expensive to set up that those were the like scams were yeah. the only profitable businesses you could create using that technology. Uh, it's ridiculous. So anyway, so we've we've seen this a lot in the industry. If you want entrepreneurship to be broadly accessible, uh, you need net neutrality in practice. Now. The arguments then tend to get into like, what's the best way to achieve net neutrality? Should it happen through a, you know, an FCC action through an act of Congress? Should we have, trust the industry to self-regulate? You know, that there's some details to be worked out on the mechanics of it. But the, the effect of anyone being able to get equal access to the internet uh, is, you know, if you care at all about entrepreneurship, you know, in the technology world, it's a no-brainer. You know, what it reminds me of is, I, so that folks like Ted Cruz, and who's gotten way more play on this this episode than ever before, but I think I've uh, talked about Ted Cruz more on this podcast than I have in the rest of my life combined. <laughs> yeah. um, but he, uh, I remember he said something, I, I'm not going to repeat what he said, but he was basically trying to imply that net neutrality is the opposite of the free market, right? That, it, that it's, it's not a free market if you, if, if you have net neutrality. And what always got me about that is like, I have a friend who's a, uh, who's an entrepreneur. And, uh, and what he has said to me that I always thought made a lot of sense is he said, you know, the free market is something we refer to, but in truth, the market is just the consequence of the rules that we've come up with, right? That there's not a true, like at the end of the day, free market, it's, it's whatever is the result of the rules that bureaucracy has made, the regulations, the laws that Congress has passed that creates a system. And then that system we regard as the free market point being like, it's still a free market under net neutrality. It's just also much more fair. Yeah, this is a really important point philosophically because um, if you can't understand what makes something into a free market, then you can really be led astray by this kind of propaganda. So, I, so I'm glad that you're bringing it up. If you think about like 
this, you know, they used in, phil- in philosophy terms, they call this the state of nature, right? Like mm. what was what was life like before there were governments and before there were nation states or even tra- like when people could just trade completely free? Was that a free market? And you think about, you know, if you've if you've watched Game of Thrones or, you know, any show set in historical times, you realize like that's not a free market. That's a market of the physically powerful, right? Anyone who can impose their will on somebody else can do things and get away with it. So I don't think anyone would call that a free market, but but then then people then try to confuse it. You say, well, there was less regulation, mm-hmm. right? There, and that like that's true. That was a less regulated market than we have today. But nobody would call it a free market because uh, only those who had tremendous power could prosper. And it wasn't even that great for them. I mean, not to get not, not to lean too heavily on Game of Thrones, but like the yeah, I'd rather be a middle class consumer in America than a king in a medieval setting like that, right? Like that it's actually not great for anybody when there are basically no rules. So yeah, a free market depends on a, on a neutral arbiter to enforce the rule of law and to, to make things, you know, participation in the market fair. So when people talk about that as more or less regulation, that's really the wrong frame altogether. The question is, what are the right regulations to create a fair market? So, so I, you know, I, I commend the senator for his sophistry and rhetoric. It's, <laughs> it's effective in this case. It does confuse the issue. But I think um, – you know, any fair definition of the term free market, you would say that if we're going to have a, a free market on the internet, we're going to have to have neutral performance of websites. Yeah. That there's no other way to accomplish it. Well, for it to be free, the rules have to be the same for everybody. Yeah, they should be fairly enforced. And that means that you can't allow any individual party to rewrite the rules at their whim. And that's what, uh, that's what you know, the absence of net neutrality would make possible for internet providers. Okay, so next uh, area. So uh, Mark Zuckerberg says that Facebook is working to make sure that foreign countries can't use Facebook to meddle in our elections. The social media giant is already taking steps, though, to eliminate any hoaxes or fake news content on Facebook. Zuckerberg says the company's goal is to show people the content they will find most meaningful and that people want accurate news. The Facebook CEO acknowledges that identifying the truth is complicated. The company has launched work that will enable users in the Facebook community to flag hoaxes and fake news. Despite the ongoing updates to the social media platform, Zuckerberg says that he's proud of Facebook's role in helping more than 2 million people register to vote while giving people a voice in this election. Dialogue, he believes, may not have happened without Facebook. My question is, should we just let Facebook do their best to manage fake news, or do you think that there is a regulatory role here? Well, it hasn't worked out that great so far. (laughs) So I feel differently about this than I did a few years ago. I mean, I... I don't think that the tech industry can have it both ways. We can't both be saying that we are the smartest, you know, people on the planet who see the future in visionary terms. And, you know, we always uh, are thinking about the, what's best for the long term and then also say these bad things happen using our platforms. And we didn't we couldn't have seen it coming. No one could have seen it coming. It's like, well, the Kremlin Strategic Reserve Fund somehow saw it coming and we didn't, you know, so somebody saw it. So it's like it was not impossible to foresee so, yeah, I think the industry has kind of forfeited the right to say that we have this under control and we should be trusted to handle it ourselves, especially when in a lot of these situations, we have perfectly sensible rules on the books already, but they just were not they were not written to apply to digital technology. Mm-hmm. So you think about the fair disclosure rules we have about political advertising, political spending. I think we made a, a perfectly reasonable choice to kind of temporarily exempt internet ads from that while we saw how they played out. But then when Facebook became the biggest media company on the planet, 
maybe that would have been a good time to revisit those rules and say, hey, maybe they actually need to apply in this circumstance. Yeah, because like, I think, yeah, well, I was going to say, because here I am in 2016 figuring out in, EV, in every TV ad how to how to say I'm Jason Cantor and I approve this message. And and so is every federal candidate in the country. And meanwhile, like a lot of the actual argument is being played out on Facebook and on social media and none of that's happening. Yeah. I, listen, I'm, I was, I have a lot of friends who work at Facebook and I, you know, and I admire the team there and what they've accomplished. You know, it's, it's really remarkable. And yet I was deeply disappointed with their unwillingness to, to police this and to get serious about it. And I think the, the really, the, the thing that just got them stuck is that these tools were used as designed. Like mm-hmm. this is the problem and the promise of online advertising-based technology. It is incredibly persuasive and incredibly powerful. That's why Facebook is one of the most valuable companies in the world. But with that power comes great responsibility. And, you know, they just, I think their their sense of morality and their sense of obligation didn't didn't keep up with the success that they were having. And I think, I don't know, I don't have any inside information here, but I think a lot of people that work there have come to regret the role that they played. And I think they actually, although they you know, they're going to lobby against there being any uh, any regulatory response. I think at some level they understand that something's going to have to change. We, we can't we can't run this like the Wild West. It's just it's too volatile. It's too powerful. It's too dangerous. OK, last one. One of the big debates between Silicon Valley and the Trump administration is the administration's policies on immigrant entrepreneurship and H-1B visas. Immigration was a hot topic covered in this week's White House meeting with tech leaders. Besides the H-1B visa issue, another potential flashpoint between the two sides is a new rule which would allow foreign-born entrepreneurs to live in this country legally while working on their companies. It's called the International Entrepreneur Rule. It's set to launch next month, but that might not happen. That's because the rule was first put into place by the Obama administration, and now it's currently under review by the Trump administration. We spent time with the founder of an AI startup called Pluto. Pratik Joshi's on an H-1B visa, but it's expiring. He says the international entrepreneur rule could be one option for him to remain in the U.S. If it doesn't go through and he's not able to stay, he says he'd have to leave the country and take the company and its potential jobs overseas. The headquarters has to move somewhere else, right? Because all the all the jobs that are being created here will be created, for example, in India or or some other country where Canada, where it's more where, where the government is more supportive of, of you know setting up businesses. So since I'm married to an immigrant who grew up to be an entrepreneur, I've been paying extra attention to this. But with regard to entrepreneurship, how does the Trump policy affect our competitiveness in the world, in your opinion? Well, this is a policy disaster that is not unique to Trump, by the way. We've been having this debate for a while in this country. And I think of all the policies that you could want to enact, you know, where there's like plenty of fair game arguments on both sides. And, you know, this is just like one of the most ridiculous arguments there is. If you talk to, I mean, even before uh, the polarization of immigration into this hot button issue, you know, even going back like 10 years or more, People in Silicon Valley have been talking about the importance of immigration to entrepreneurship. So let's let's start with the facts first. Uh, it is just a, a absolutely established fact that political boundaries that are open to immigration and are tolerant of new kinds of people have better economic development than than places that are closed. Uh, and you know, I'm sure we can include some links, you know, somewhere to show the research mm-hmm. for this. It is like 
unequivocally clear. Uh, a crazy percentage of the most uh, important American companies had an immigrant co-founder. Uh, if you look even city by city, the more immigrants you have in your city, the more likely you're going to have positive economic growth in the future. And if you talk to anybody who knows anything about entrepreneurship, everybody agrees that this is a really important uh, positive source of dynamism and uh, excitement in the economy. And every country has gotten this memo. I mean, the academic research has been done over the last 20 years. So there is a international arms race to try to be the most welcoming to uh, entrepreneurs. And what's especially crazy about it is that in the U.S., we do not have a visa category in the law for entrepreneur. There is no startup visa. So people, you know, people have all kinds of anti-immigrant arguments that they make over the years, but none of those arguments really apply in this situation, especially because the vast majority of immigrant entrepreneurs are already in the United States. They're here on a student visa. They're here on an H-1B visa. And like, think about this, just Visualize the situation like someone like think about like a future Sergey Brin who's, you know, getting a PhD in an American university. Right. So think about their life experience. They saw the United States as the shining city on the hill. You think how hard they worked to, you know, get an education that allowed them to come to the U.S. to become educated here, to get into a PhD program, to pursue some research. Some of those people have been in this country by the time they finish their PhD, 10, 12, 15 years already. And the United States has invested collectively an incredible amount of resources into them, right? Think about we have, you know, supported them to, an, to the nth degree. And then they graduate with their PhD and they're like, you know what I want to do? I want to take the research I did in the university. I want to turn it into a business and become a job creator. And right at that moment, when they're finally going to go from being like a net drain on resources in the United States to a job creator, invest in our community and create new positive growth for, the, for America. We're like, wait, what's that you say? <laughs> oh, now you want to do something good for us? Get the hell out of my country. Well, it's truly— like, Of all the moments you're going to pick, really, right then? It's truly nuts, right? Because if you, if you take, if you take the, the sort of racist-tinged immigration argument that the Trump administration makes and the piece of it that says, well, these folks are going to take your jobs— like. This is the area where this we're literally talking about a person who's going to create jobs. And it's not like somebody it's not like, well, that immigrant took that idea that someone else would have come up with. No, they probably wouldn't have come up with it. They wouldn't have created those jobs here. So, I mean, and that's like, you know, going back to my libertarian roots, like this used to be a right of center idea that ideas and and people who build companies, they're not they're not interchangeable. It's not a commodity product. You can't just say the idea would have been like, no, individual people shape history. They they are important. They matter. So, OK, but that's true here, too. And here's the here's the nuttiest part about it. Okay, This is just the most crazy part. OK, so you see, so you say, you know what? Get this person out of my country. I don't want them here. I don't want them to become a job creator. I don't want the venture capital that's going to be invested in their community. We don't want that here. It's not like the company's not going to get started. <laughs> Because we live in a world, finally, where products and capital flow across borders incredibly easy. And anyone who thinks that's going to change or can be undone is living in a fantasy world. That is the new reality of finance. That is a new reality uh, of the mobility of products. That, like the underlying laws of capitalism that power that are far too strong to be stopped. And plus, they're a really good thing. Like create a lot of surplus for people in the world. So I wouldn't want to stop it. But you, it can't be stopped. Okay. So what are they going to do? They're going to go back to their home country and start the startup there, which means are American investors going to be out of luck? Nope. The very, very wealthy venture capitalists, individual like people who invest in startups, they can just invest in the company overseas. Will American consumers be harmed because they can't buy the product? Like if Google had been founded, uh, you know, in Europe, 
would American consumers not be able to go to Google.com and access it? Nope, we would be fine. So, so consumers would still get to use the product and buy it. Investors would still be able to make their returns. But the overwhelming research shows that job creation and the community effects of startups are local. They're hyper-local. So the jobs would be created there. So you've sent the jobs and the community development. And it's not just the direct jobs, the programmers who work at Google, but it's all the secondary jobs that get created by the you know, flywheel of economic growth. So you're really saying you would rather have this startup be created somewhere else than here in America? That's somehow better. It's like the most ridiculous argument I've ever heard. A huge team candor thank you to Eric Reese for taking the time to speak with us today. Obviously, it would have been way easier for Eric to just have one of his mini robots fax his answers to us. So it means a lot to me that he took the time to talk to us using his human mouth and words. If you were into what Eric was discussing about business and philosophy today, you should keep following his work. Uh, TheLeanStartup.com, it's a great resource, as is his newest book, The Startup Way. And don't forget about that resist bot. All you have to do is type in resist.bot in your web browser or text the word resist to the number 50409. That's resist to the number 50409, and you can start resisting today. Thanks for listening to Majority 54. Uh, Please make sure that you're subscribed and that you leave a comment about the show because we need those comments because that's how we make sure that we're making a show that represents you. Do you guys know what happens when you subscribe? As soon as a new episode becomes available, it pops up on your phone. And so when you wake up, it's like Jason and me saying, good morning. It's going to be a great day. Or at least a really good commute. Uh, You can find me on Twitter as at Jason Kander. And if there's something that you want us to know, but you don't want everybody else to know it, you can email hellomajority54 at gmail.com. I'm Jason Kander. And on behalf of Diana and the whole Majority 54 team, thanks for listening to Majority 54. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.